Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. We're in the South Bronx today. It's a sweltering New York City afternoon. A woman selling fruit from a sidewalk cart chats with a customer. Robert Moses' Bruckner Expressway rumbles overhead. This is a neighborhood of truck parking lots and former factories with names like Philip Knitting Mills still etched in stone above the entrance. The artist Derek Forjor comes down from one of those buildings to let us into his studio. As we say hello, today's other guest, Sean Leonardo, arrives. On foot, thirsty. Ooh, wee! Yeah. Anywhere to get iced coffee around here? Iced coffee? Uh, you're in the South Bronx, man. You might want to change that to a bottle. A Yoo-Hoo or something? I don't know. Sean and Derek are both New York City artists on the rise, with shows in places like the Guggenheim and the Whitney Museum. We're here to talk to them today about their work with people caught up in the justice system, and maybe about what art and artists can do that nobody else can. Derek and Sean both work with our program, Project Reset. It offers people arrested for a low-level offense the chance to complete a brief program, like an artist-led workshop, and avoid both court and a criminal record. Project Reset started as a pilot program for teens. It's now covering people of all ages and will soon expand across New York City. Up in Derek's studio, we sit around a table we built out of cardboard boxes. Sunlight pours through the windows. Large artworks in progress lean against the walls. Sean is something of a pioneer when it comes to using art in place of the justice system. You'll hear him reference a program he started called Assembly. So I began the interview by asking him how he sees that work fitting into who he is as an artist. Any trajectory to my practice that I might share will sound overly clean as a narrative, but I will say that I think there was a somewhat of a dramatic shift in my practice, or at least in the content of my work when Trayvon Martin was killed. The work holistically has always been, uh, for me, about questioning identities, or I should say rather preconceived notions of what masculinity means, particularly in brown and black communities. And really it led me to start to question around Trayvon Martin's death and then every subsequent death, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, the list goes on and on. I had to ask myself, how is it that these definitions of manhood, specific to black and brown men, have a direct correlation to the ways in which they are killed? In other words, the perceptions of fear that directly lead to their death. It was also around that same time that through my performance practice, much of my work was expanding outside of my own concerns, and I was bringing participants in to the process. The first work that was a direct response to police violence was a piece entitled I Can Breathe, in which I staged a what was felt and thought to be a self-defense course. And it was over 45 minutes in which I would address what was being taught, actual self-defense maneuvers, through the lens of police violence. And it culminated, of course, in the chokehold that took the life of Eric Garner. It was right around that time that I was thinking about my work through ideas of embodied performance. 
what it means to take information that would otherwise exist only in your mind and move that elsewhere in the body so that you would have a different type of experience, a different type of bodily knowledge around the work. It's in that capacity that something that would otherwise be reduced to an argument or a headline or just a debate, all of a sudden takes on more complexity, takes on much more of a visceral experience and it's much harder to walk away from. I still to this day consider my work within the criminal justice field an art project. It's indistinguishable from any of my other works. So it was like two or three years ago now that you, you start to get involved in providing this like arts-based alternative to young people who've ended up involved in the justice system generally in a fairly low level but still can be really consequential way. Then you decide I'm gonna give Derek here a call and I'm, I'm wondering what, what made you reach out to Derek? My chief partner in this work is Center for Court Innovation, most directly Brooklyn Justice Initiatives. And it was right around the time that the recess program, diversion program, which we entitled Assembly, started to take hold that my good friend and Derek's now friend, Aaron Charlotte Powers, approached me about the expansion of a, of a similar platform. And moving it into this Project Reset, the program that That's Court right, Project runs. Reset. And to think about what would an arts-based program look like in its most rapid form? After an initial intake, lowest level misdemeanors, one two-hour workshop or moment, particularly with youth at the time. And in my point of view, I immediately started to think about artists that could really use that time in a compelling way. And Derek came to mind. And why? Why Derek? To me, it requires someone that can both talk to talk and walk the walk. What's crucial about a project like Project Reset is that in this very limited time frame, the conversation that can be generated through the arts process can be both critical and fulfilling. And I think what Derek brings to the table is a touch and this is something that is not quantifiable or even tangible. And so Derek, unlike Sean, you tend to work more in a studio, yeah. working more by yourself. Right. What, what did you think when you got the call from Sean and how's the experience been in general? Well, you? it's funny because I, we've never had this conversation, but I first owe him a thank you because without that recommendation, I would have never come to this work and I would have been in my studio sort of doing my thing. I trust his work. I think he trusts mine too, or what, what I'm in it for. And those are some of the things that are hard to put in a speech. But I think at a spiritual level, Sean and I always kind of saw each other. And it, was, it wasn't just a friendly thing. I think he really, as he expressed, was very thoughtful about who would be there. What he did not know is that I had an arrest experience that happened to me when I was 19 that I had carried and not spoken about for 20 years. Uh, it was kind of a family secret. It was my secret. It was, you know, and, and there was a lot of shame around it for a long time. And, and I had just asked myself the week prior how I can take what I'm doing in the studio, kind of dealing with the art world, which is a particular demographic that is not exactly boots to the street. And I was starting to feel a bit isolated. And I was wondering how I could make my practice more relevant to people that look like me, everyday people, people that are indigent and poor. And, and then I got a call from Aaron who said, Sean. So there was a divine 
connection I felt about that call, and I knew I had to take that because it was literally an answer to a question I had asked a week before. You feel like doing this criminal justice-based work is what's helped you to talk about this experience Oh, man, publicly? It, it was so cathartic. I mean, that's not even what I thought it would be about. I thought I would not discuss that. But sure, I thought it was a motivation for me that this is a way to deal with kind of what I was carrying and, and pay it forward and work with young people. But very quickly, I found that in the space of doing this work, that narrative was a kind of capital, that it was a way to gain immediate trust, that the young people knew what my investment was, why I was there. Uh, I didn't think about the fact that sometimes they could perceive you to have a job or to be doing what you're obligated to do. Well, you're kind of the man in this situation, yeah, like you're right? You're mandated artist yeah, yeah, exactly. session. Yeah. So as a way to engender trust, I started to kind of position my own personal biography and narrative as, as a way to make myself vulnerable. And it, it, it would work every time. So in that, I started to reassess and to reconsider my own feelings and experience through the lens of all these other experiences. And it became very personally cathartic for me. Yeah. So let's talk maybe about like what's actually going on in the room where it happens, you know, where you're doing these, it's two hour sessions, right? So it's really not a lot of time Mm -hmm. to help you guys have been working with young people to help them like process these often like traumatic experiences. You are kind of the court mandated artist. What are the ways that we quickly try to set up a different atmosphere? Knowing that the program is court mandated and that there are expectations that the experience will be punitive. One of the first things that I address is I say, I'm not interested in the case at all. I'm not interested in your guilt nor your innocence. What I am interested in is what we can accomplish in a two-hour period through a collaborative effort. And it's in that simple line that I try to establish a tone and try to establish a working environment that regardless of why a person enters that space through those doors, that those expectations of punishment and shame can be set aside for a moment and that for those two hours, I might guarantee that it will be worthwhile. And it's also an experience where some of the people you're working with have not been exposed to capital A art. That's right. All that much and the whole thing might seem very intimidating to them, right? I mean, a lot of the art world is set up sometimes to not be that welcoming to outsiders. That's right. right. I think so. I mean, wealth and whiteness. Yes, You said it to me at one point. Yeah, but I think that Artists ourselves have always been fairly democratic. I think that the space that artists occupy is not fixed, that we can be many things, that we assert our humanity. And I think that that's the way I, I think of myself and, and Sean as well. So I think when you, when you approach them on that level, it works. And so, Derek, we bring people in. Yeah. We're trying to establish a vibe right off the bat that says, hey, I'm coming to you honestly, yep. let's have an experience together, let's make it meaningful. Yeah. And then, so what does that work for you? You and, you and Sean are different artists, so yes. what, what, what does that work look like for you? So I'll tell you, I mean, a breakdown in terms of time is the first 10 or 15 minutes is a get to know you. I want to know who they are, what borough they come from, something interesting about themselves. I share the same. And then I invite them, much as Sean described, to kind of take a, take a ride with me that if they could just suspend what brought them here and just if they can just commit in terms of focus and energy over the next 
you know, 90 minutes, we'd be in good shape. And they usually buy in. Immediately following that, we do a kind of art activity, which is very kind of rudimentary to art for me, which is drawing from life. We uh, put together a still life, we light it, everyone has their own kind of workstation. And they begin an observational drawing, which is very direct. It's put down what you see. This is about process, it's not about product. Just let's go for it. We choose a song, they all choose music, which is very often contemporaneous music. I'm a little older now, so I, you know, I can't I cannot DJ, but uh, you know they play some music that's relevant to them. Very often, you know, a little baby or some, you know, something really cool, and that gets them comfortable. And they start working, and halfway through the exercise, I have everyone stand up and we walk around and look at each other's drawings. Some people are struggling, other people are overly confident, um, but in the process of looking at each other's works, they generally develop more confidence. Uh, we finish the exercise and we have a critique session. And it's in this point that we sort of walk around and look at the works as a group. Everyone sort of enters a discussion uh, to critique the work. Uh, I find this to be really team building. There's a lot of camaraderie that, that evolves at that point. They're, they're kind of gentle with each other. And then we return to the, the circle that we started with for 15 minutes and we kind of recap. And that's where I kind of unpack that this is a sort of an object lesson, that they came in not knowing any, anything or not having any of these skills. They trusted the process. They learned from each other kind of best practices that, that together we, we could assess that everyone has something to offer at the end in the critique. And so how they could then apply these things to life is what the concluding kind of exit conversation is about. And Derek, when, when you were saying that uh, at the end of the two-hour session, there's like a reflection, and that's the time when you want people to kind of think about maybe what they've learned and apply some larger lessons, I guess. Like, yeah. I mean, I realize we're not making widgets here and trying to just produce result X at the end of this process, but, right. but what are the ways in which you think doing this sort of still life and this mm -hmm. collaborative process is helping people maybe think about their life a little differently or some or decisions, I, I guess, yeah. when it comes to what led them into this mandated artist session? Yeah, and I look, at the risk of sounding self-congratulatory or Pollyanna, I think the degree of transformation that's possible within the setting of two hours is limited. What I find to be more impactful, when you actualize and you activate your body, in an activity. To me, that's the point of transformation. It's not necessarily the object lesson and that everybody's gonna kinda click into that and walk away from here and skip, skip home and never, you know, I don't think it works that way. But feeling validated, having time carved out for your expression, which sounds very simplistic, but I'm basing this on the response of the, of the participants. One of the things that I never expected to happen, I'm eager to hear how this works with Sean as well, was in my first few sessions, sort of asking them at the end, how was that? And I thought they would say, oh, we barely made it through, you know, God, it was arduous. Almost every session, half of them would say, that was relaxing. Hmm. Like, like, like they got a massage, you know, or like, What's well, a time of like focus and, yeah. and presence. Right? And I never thought about the gift it was to give people kind of studio time. But then when I thought about it, that's what I enjoy about being in the studio. I'm playing my music. I'm barefoot. I'm not thinking about anything else. You know, and I guess I, you know, in, in, a, in an effort to be pragmatic, I really kind of discounted that. But that 
time to young people who have been discounted, who have been processed, who have been sort of targeted, all the nonverbal cues they get around value and self, to say, hey, I'm going to give you time, and this is your space to do your thing, they really felt grateful for that. And just think about that in which they're brought into a scenario that they've been obligated to be at. Right. Being told that otherwise there may be consequences. And they were greening them into instead a situation where we're inviting them to cancel out the noise. Right. Right. And to understand that while you may have been brought into this situation through expectations that it might be punitive, we're going to bring some value into these two hours of your day. Right. Make it expansive. Absolutely. Not punitive. And it absolutely correlates in the ways in which their personhood, yeah. their creativity are given validation. You're talking about black and brown young people and even in the older populations that I've worked with in which that creative spirit has, in many cases, never been validated. That's right. They're coming from school environments in which there aren't, aren't even art programs. Yeah, but you know what, Sean, and even thinking about the power of creativity, and I, I really try not to get into hokey territory, <laughs> but in listening to Sean talk about it, how do you solve problems? How do you solve any problems? It's creativity. So at a core level, these people have made poor decisions in many cases, right? I decided to smoke weed with my friends. I, I wanted to shoplift because my cousin said so. It's just like classic poor decision making. That's evidence of like kind of lack of maturity. But creativity is how you rethink those skills or those desires to be rebellious or to... Um, so I have an object lesson because we have to sort of structure the time. All of our, our, our teaching artists will have kind of an object lesson, but I think the transfer happens experientially and, and not in the kind of time schedule. Right. It's often said about the criminal justice system that the process is the punishment. Yeah. You know, and in this instance, you guys are, I mean, this is going to sound, if not hokey, kind of something, but yeah. I mean, the process is the possibility or the gift in a way, right? I mean, no, it's true. Can, can I, I'm curious, Sean, about, and not to take your spot here, but in your, what, what happens in your time? I, I never have had that the time. That was my question. To, oh, okay, yeah. all right, so great. So we're Go both ahead. curious yeah, about we're this. Both curious. Yeah, and, and, and I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Sean's performances. I have, I have yeah. indeed. So. Pa powerful. So I'm just, I've been dying to know what happens in that time. Sure. I attempt to, in many cases, steer right into the reasons that they are appearing before me. But I don't center their personal stories of arrest and or incarceration. Instead, I might offer a single word as a prompt, as a starting point. Typically, what I move forward with is some sort of emotive space, something that might capture a sense of being. So I might say something like, we're going to organize ourselves or we're going to share stories around the word anxiety, isolation, desperation. And so, of course, it's in that space that quite often their own narratives of arrest may rise to the surface because it's a raw experience. And then the nature of my work is to take those stories, which are not shared aloud, but rather with someone else in the room that is a stranger, but then we allow those stories to be channeled through someone else's body, a different participant. And so the principle is that two very powerful things can happen when you take a story and 
translate them into a performative gesture, as minimal as it might be, without words. For the storyteller, they get for the first time to objectively see their own story played out in front of them. By someone else. By someone else, through a different body. Collectively, we also take a moment to analyze what is at the heart of that story. So quite often what happens, particularly when an experience is raw or potentially traumatic, is there's a level of disconnect that happens. Particularly with young populations, they recite the story as if it happened to someone else. The risk in that is that they've internalized the ways in which that story has been told for them. That these stories of criminality have been imposed on their body. Right, you're talking about a population that's often being told things about them, right? I that's, mean, through when their they school see us, settings, right? in their families, in, in their family settings, in the streets, that their lives are being devalued. And so it's in this process where we're trying to bestow more meaning into the story so that, yes, a young person or anyone really, because I work with various populations, might attribute more meaning and sense the decisions that led to that moment. But also, maybe more importantly, as a group, we get to examine the circumstances, the powers, the forces that have also influenced that story. So it's in the complexity, it's in that larger meaning that a person all of a sudden is able to take hold of that narrative differently. But it's in all of those details that we also can assign one essential thing to that story. And oftentimes it's the ability to say, I was afraid, I felt alone, I felt abused, I felt manipulated. It's in that single emotive word that a person more firmly grasps what has happened. And so it's in that meaning, it's in that subjectivity that they're finally placing into their own story, reclaiming the agency of how that story is told, that we're moving through something that would otherwise be punitive and restoring value to how a person sees themselves. Because in my point of view, guilt is a limited deterrence. Punishment, as has been proven, by many stakeholders in the criminal justice field. Punishment is also a limited deterrence. Especially for a teenager. Especially for a teenager in which consequence has been, hasn't been fully formed. And so what moves a person into navigating the world differently and potentially making different choices is not the threat of what might happen to them. It's rather how do they feel more full how do we create a whole sense of who they are? And that, to me, starts with how we tell our, our own stories. Yeah, so what, what, what I realize it's probably hard to generalize, but, I mean, what are the kinds of stories that are being enacted, and, 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 and what does that look like? In many cases, what we discover is that criminality and the way in which these particular bodies, our bodies, are criminalized happens well before they were arrested. And so what we start to understand is that it's in the schools, at home, it's in the streets, it's in the job place in which a person becomes devalued. And if in a person's surroundings, whether in direct or indirect means, a person understands that they are not worth something, then it's just a matter of time be before that fault turns into something larger. That's right. 
It's just a matter of time before that mistake, as driven by not feeling fully human, that that mistake becomes a charge. Because these are, these are bodies that are constantly being criminalized. So it's worth being said that many of the reasons that particularly these young populations are coming through Reset in other communities, white communities, they weren't even result in arrests. We would be doing these participants a disservice if we didn't use these two hours to introduce some level of criticality, not only to how they see themselves, but also their own relationship to the justice system. Because it's in that complexity, it's in that humanity that a person will start to move differently and seek out other options. But if you pull up a limitation to how they can move and be in the world by saying, if you do this then, that is not gonna guide different choices. I think the power of Reset by using art is to reclaim that humanity, that agency. As you were talking, I thought about my son's grandmother. I have a 21-year-old son, and I think about him a lot in this work. I worked with a lot of young people, and his grandmother said something to me the other day. You know, of course, we're like, he's a kid. He's screwing up, and I'm, and I'm like complaining. And she says, well, at least my grandson is not in jail. And something about that relating him to the possibility of an arrest. This is a kid who's never ha had any trouble, but because of what he looks like, she understands that he could very easily be in jail. But there was something in criminalizing him that I found problematic. Th this is something that he inherits. That people for, carry in their bodies, right? I mean, that's what you guys are Well, in about. your home, in your, in your grandmother's expectation of, of your, you know, like, he, he has no interaction with the criminal justice system. But it's so prevalent and so likely that he could and so this inevitability that you talk about as a result of a kind of criminalization, when I go in a bodega and I see my own body, my own person in a security camp, I think, oh my God, I hope nothing happens because I look like a criminal. If this ever went, if that tape went out and I had done nothing, I'd have a hard time in the minds of the public because my phenotypical presence in that black and white grainy cam equals criminal. I look guilty, and I'm buying Starburst. And you know, if I were gonna relate a very particular experience that I often encounter in the space of Project Reset and Assembly, in the youngest population, they are closed in on their own bodies. So again, with these expectations that the experience is going to be punitive, that they are going to be yet once again ushered into doing something or forced into or contained, you can see in their body language, they're slumped forward. They don't look you in the eyes. They're closed in. They minimal movement, shuffling feet. I often think of what drives me into this work or the, the chief motive is how do you change how someone perceives themselves, not only emotionally and mentally, but how that might restore some level of humanity and how they conduct themselves through their own bodies. That's where the transformation is palpable. When all of a sudden, when something clicks, when their narrative is given visual form, all of a sudden they open up, they stand up straighter, their shoulders move backward, they're able to communicate by looking at you in the eye. That agency that we've been talking about 
you can sense that in someone's presence. And that is a person that all of a sudden is going to move, even from this limited time, that is going to move into the world with a bit more confidence and able to navigate things through strength, not weakness. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like both of you, like in different ways, because you're different artists, whether it's through the sort of still life work or whether it's the performative work, like you're focused on the individual person. I mean, every time one of you says validating, the other guy nods his head, because I think that's really a big focus for both of you in the work that you're doing with, with these young people. So you're focused on the individual, but then you're also focused on larger context in a way and trying yes. to disrupt larger narratives and maybe introduce the idea of like, hey, you've got a social and historical context that is not always in your favor. And yes, that can seem limiting, but knowing that gives you agency. Absolutely right. And I, th I think the question that is then often posed, particularly to artists like ourselves, but also against the effort of expanding Project Reset, which is right on the cusp of going citywide, really taking hold, specifically in our institutions. The question we always then face is, why art? Why is it not, what is it in the capacity of art? Why isn't it painting over graffiti? Exactly, or? why is it not contained and limited to community service right. or some other type of consultation or forced labor? And there's in that question, a limited scope of imagination of what can be accomplished in two hours. And what I would say is that artists offer a very different skill set. Yes. And artists are able to go back to Derek's point, able to say, yes, this happened. Yes, you had a role in why this is happening. But how else might we look at this thing? Where is it that we can introduce different ways of looking so that it's not a story or an event that is going to take a hold of the individual. I often say like, is it a story that runs you or can you run, run the, the story? story? That's hard. You know, I think that uh, to Sean's point, everywhere else in the system, it focuses on the problem. You're here because you did something wrong. Art is a space of potential. Every day we go in the studio, it's full of potential. That's why I come here. And that's the space that is, for them, empowering. That everywhere else in the system, we focused on the problem. The problem you're in, the problem you created. You go home, your parents reinstate the problem, you get all these, and then you come into art, and the art is a space of potential, which is all, all you're hearing from us, is like, how capable are you? So I think that's probably the point of transformation, just acknowledging and, and insisting on, and I think that that two hours, insist that then you actualize this potential. We're acknowledging that you have potential, but it's not a conversation. Now you will make good on it. Show us, with Sean, your body, with me, your eye, your hand. And I think that the freedom for there not to be a perfect end result is also... It's like open-ended. It's open-ended. Yeah, it doesn't end when you leave. So as, as Sean just mentioned, I mean, Reset's on the cusp of expanding to most of the city, and it's not just young people anymore. It's moving into the Brooklyn Museum. You guys, I think, helped make the curriculum. What's the challenge in sort of training the trainers, in a sense? Mm. How do we bottle this process, in a way, I guess? Or what were some of the challenges for you guys? 
It's a continuous challenge because I think it requires an expansive view of what pedagogy is. And the difficulty often comes in being prescriptive and not being responsive to the energy and conversations that emerge in the space. So as is the case in our own work, sometimes you might move in with a very specific expectation or perception of what the thing is going to be and have to abandon that plan entirely. And Sean is right. I think the, the improvisation has to be baked into the program, meaning we have to give enough elasticity for an artist to give the program whatever shape they dictate. What I think we want at the end is effectiveness. We want transformation. We want connection. We want humanity to be affirmed and validated. How that looks, we're open to learn and we're game for that. And whenever you bring together a group of artists, we represent risk. And I don't mean risk as it's probably referred to in the space of criminal justice. I mean a, a positive creative risk, meaning we don't know exactly what shape this will take. But I think as long as you stand in the position of affirmation when these participants come to you and you're committed to a certain kind of care in the experience that the outcomes will be beneficial. You can almost guarantee that. I would also add that the requirement really is of an artist and a person, a human being that understands that the stakes are rather high, even if it's low level misdemeanor. And it does compel an artist to really start to become much more knowledgeable of how the criminal justice has, movement has been shaped and is changing. And I can tell you that in the scope of assembly, over the three years, we have brought in many different artists and residents into the process, and they have all left transformed mm. because they never quite understand that they have to up the ante in their own practice in order to be responsive to these populations and that it will very well feed into their work. It will very well feed into their studio practice and that reciprocity, if you're there, if you're present for each one of those sessions will leave you changed. Derek, what are your thoughts or maybe the better word is beliefs mm. in the practice of diversion? And by diversion, you mean an alternative to sentencing. That's right, to formal, traditional. Yeah, I, look, I'm excited about diversion as a possibility. I mean, not to personalize it, but as a 19-year-old person, I just kind of wished somebody took that into account. I may not be making the best decisions right now. Like, I just wanted someone to say, all right, one more chance. Diversion says to me that there is a midstep. It's like the yellow light. You know, the, the traffic signal only had red and green for a long time. That's right. For a long number of years. And to me, diversion is the yellow light that says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe there's a point of consideration here. Something else can happen. And to go further, create diversion opportunities that have arts or something that affirms humanity. I mean, I think it really gives the American criminal justice system a conscience in a way that does not focus on this punitive, puritanical, witch hunt notion of wrongdoing. So I, I'm a believer in diversion. What, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, when you hold up the American justice system against other examples across the world, what is uniquely punitive about 
the way the mass incarceration has emerged has to always be looked through a racialized lens. Yeah. And the way that blackness is criminalized. Yeah. And the reason that I participate in this imperfect system. Yeah. By system, I mean diversion, not the justice system largely, but the reason I have decided through my own practice that it's a necessary collaboration is that to your point, or as an extension of your point, diversion is the single existing thing that starts to create a corrective mm -hmm, mm -hmm. cycle yes. to what we have done to black and brown bodies. Yes, yes. And it's, yes, it's the giving a chance, but it's also the philosophy that incarceration should be the last resort that the default should be diversion. That imaginative space is what I want to contribute to. I, I agree with that in terms of the enormous potentiality around diversion. And I think that's where we should invest a lot of our energy, you know, as creatives, but even as a society. I mean, this is the language that I hope starts to get out there. And to your point, this investment, if I'm going to add any call to action, it's this, that the stakeholders in legislative and policy change will need quite a bit of convincing that art is a space and a capacity that might drive change. And we need artists and arts institutions to step up. And so often in our insular conversations, we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. And is this deep investment and in understanding that as an artist, we do have a responsibility to operate out in the world in however you define that, that will very much drive culture. Cultural change comes first. Political and policy change always follows hearts and minds. I mean, I, I think a criminal justice world where all of the diversion programs were pursued with the same kind of humanity and seriousness of purpose that it certainly sounds like you guys are doing, then that would be a great world. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not always the case with all diversion programs. I mean, it sounds like we need a mobilization of artists, you know, sort of like under the New Deal or, mm -hmm. or something. Well, you look, and I don't, I don't only see it as a space of artists. I think that we have a particular set, skill set, as, as Sean said, but I, I see so much potential for diversion programs of all shape. As people are listening to this, think about what you do for a living or most of the time or passionate, even what you do in, in, in journalism, and think about how that could apply. What's great about art is that it's broad enough for an elastic interpretation of potential. We are free and we kind of exist on the periphery. We have this kind of slippery category. But what that then does is opens up so many other possibilities. I can see so many other industries that can have their own brand of diversion that two hours can be transformative. Again, the primary focus here is on experiential change. Uh, we're not making artists. That's not our goal. We are helping to restore human beings. That is a lot of space for a lot of experiences. That was Derek Forjor, and with him was Sean Leonardo. They're both artists who work with our program, Project Reset. To learn more about both Sean and Derek's work and Project Reset, 
and to see some really great photos of our session in Derek's studio taken by my colleague Samiha Mia, there's a link to the episode page in your show notes or visit cordinnovation.org slash newthinking. For their help with today's episode, I'd like to thank Aaron, Charlotte Powers, Anna Christ, and Adam Mansky. This episode was edited and produced by me. You can let me know what you thought of it on Twitter at DidacticMatt. Recording and engineering was by Max Aaron. Samiha Mia is our Director of Design. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.